All right. So here we go. Um, like I said, welcome back to those of you who are joining us online as well. Welcome back. Um, it truly has been a while since we've been here. Um, and I'm really glad to get uh, the semester rolling. Um, and also, of course, welcome back to all of our college students. Um, not having you guys over the summer is a drag. So uh, welcome back. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, and, and those of you that are new, uh, obviously I hope that you'll find here a church home that is a home away from home and uh, will encourage you and equip you to live out the gospel every single day. So tonight we are beginning a brand new series entitled Deconstructing Deconversion. And this series is going to take a deeper look at some of the reasons why it seems there are so many people who are walking away from the faith. Um, in recent years, as many of you guys have seen, there have been a number of high-profile stories of Christian leaders who have very publicly walked away from Christianity. Um, among those include the following. Um, Kevin Max from DC Talk. Um, some of you guys are way too young to remember when he was in DC Talk, but uh, that was my childhood. The, the, sh the song Jesus Freak was uh, the anthem of my preteen years. And now Kevin Max calls himself an ex-evangelical. Um, he, uh, he released a statement saying that he no longer identified with the core tenets of Christianity, though he says he believes in the universal Christ, whatever on earth that means. Um, a couple of years ago, there was another high-profile story um, featuring Rhett and Link. Um, my son loves watching their podcast. I think his favorite podcast is Rhett and Link. And a couple of years ago, they detailed how they had begun to walk away from Christianity and listed the various reasons why uh, they could no longer identify with the faith. Marty Sampson, who was a, a worship leader at Hillsong, some of whose songs uh, we have sung in this church, uh, a couple that we still do. Though he's walked away, the songs themselves are still very good. Um, but here's a guy who's leading worship in one of the most high-profile worship leading jobs in the world, uh, saying that he can no longer identify as a Christian. Another was Joshua Harris a few years ago. Joshua Harris, of course, the author of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And after that, the pastor of a megachurch for quite a few years. And he began to backtrack on the things that he had written in his book, and then that continued in backtracking away from the faith and backtracking away from his marriage, and now considers himself to be an atheist. Joseph Solomon um, is a story that we'll look at. A popular Christian YouTuber, influencer, um, spoken word poet, and we're, we're going to get into his story in a bit. Michael Gunger um, of the band Gunger, another very popular worship band, um, some of whose, so whose songs are still among my favorites. Beautiful worship songs about the Lord. Um, and now he says he no longer identifies with the faith at all. A guy named Paul Maxwell who, you know, when we look at this list, we, we might think that this is just entertainers, right? That, or, or we might look at this list and say, well, they're just, you know, in terms of how much they've learned, your average Joes. Paul Maxwell was a contributor for the site Desiring God. He was a philosophy prof at Moody Bible Institute, has a PhD from Trinity Evangelical. So all of the credentials that you could possibly have 
um, for knowledge about the faith. I'm sure a guy who could think circles around most of us, and yet he too walked away. Or Abraham Piper, the son of John Piper. John Piper, of course, one of the most well-known pastors in the entire world, and his son is violently atheist. Or John Steingard, leader of the um, lead singer of the, the band Hawk Nelson. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And I'm sure you could add your own names to that list. And with every one of those stories, we step back with shock and we ask, what happened here? This series, hopefully, will answer some of the burning questions that we're asking. Like, what has led to these people walking away? Could something have been done to prevent that from happening? Or more close to home for us, could the same thing happen to me? Could it happen to you? Could it happen to the person who's sitting next to you? Is it, perhaps, happening right now? And you are the only one that knows it. Because you haven't told anyone, but that's where you are. We'll also ask the question, were these people right? Right to walk away, at least from certain things. Are there things that we need to walk away from? This past week, I have watched and listened to and read dozens and dozens of stories of deconversion. And one impression that I walked away with is that series like the last one that we were just in, why is this even in here? Um, for those of you that, that weren't here over the summer, we went through a whole series called Why Is This Even In Here? And we opened up to the strangest, weirdest, most confusing and odd passages in the Bible. Passages that make you scratch your head and say, why is this even in here? And we examined those things and we saw the beauty of the gospel in those stories. And as I'm watching these deconversion stories, series like that were all the more significant than ever, all the more important than ever in my mind because there is a disconnect between a deep knowledge of the Word so often and walking away. So many of the deconversion stories that I, that I read or watched pointed to places in the Bible and said, how can you believe in something this crazy? And we looked at stories that were crazy and weird and showed why those things are beautiful. And it broke my heart watching these stories because there are good answers that exist to these really good questions. And we have to be willing to ask those questions as well as wrestle with the answers. And so I've been pulling my hair out as I'm watching these stories and I'm, I'm almost yelling at the screen sometimes, no, who told you that? Who, who brought you to that conclusion? You know, they'd say something like, and then I studied and I discovered that this or that was true about the Bible. And I'm like, oh, but it isn't though. Who, who told you that answer? Where did you find that? In many of these stories, there's a critique of faith, faith itself. Faith as being belief without evidence. And so one of the things that we're going to do in this series is we're going to take a hard look at what faith actually is. Another common thread in these stories is a search for truth. As if truth can only be found outside of where they've been. Oftentimes that search for truth 
hasn't led them deeper into what we believe is the truth, but further away. They'll have stories sometimes of an emotional conversion to Christianity, but then at some point that's followed by real study and then not liking what you find. And so a person learns more and studies more and information comes out in this study that calls their beliefs into question. One particular story that I was watching, the guy said, the facts that I was discovering were colliding head-on with the beliefs that I had been clinging to. And so there's this, this belief that I, I found these facts that are at odds with Christianity and I've got to pick which I'm going to stay with. What I've always believed or what I now know to be true. And as I've watched so many of these stories, one of the things that I've also walked away with, and I think all of us need to walk away with, is that it's an oversimplification to say that people deconvert simply because they just want to live in sin. They miss sinning. They miss the world. Many people who deconvert want very badly to remain in the faith. Because so much of their lives has been invested into it. That so much of their, their community, their, their friendships, their, their relationships, so much of their effort and their life has gone into this. And so for many, it is a crisis. A crisis of identity. A crisis of belief. A crisis of who you really are. And so today we're going to look at one such crisis. And hopefully some lessons that we can take from it. So, raise your hand if you know who Joseph Solomon is. You've ever watched any of his stuff? Okay, a couple of you. Joseph Solomon um, is a spoken word poet, singer, speaker, um, eventually social media influencer, with a very, very wide following. Okay? His YouTube channel has over 600,000 subscribers, which I think is pretty good, right? Um, and the views on his 70 videos uh, exceed 15 million. That, of course, doesn't include the things that are posted on other platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Perhaps his most famous uh, poem was called Shadow of a Doubt. And in this poem, uh, which he released uh, a, a couple of years ago, he recounts his battle with crippling doubt. He talks about his envy of his little niece who just believes without any pretense whatsoever. His wish that he could be as confident in the faith as his grandmother who worshipped Jesus on her deathbed. At one point in the, the poem he cries out, my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms. God, every night I laid down my head to sleep and the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Later, he continues, I'm tired. I'm tired and I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because honestly I've considered quitting. But where will I go? Back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls when I pray. I'm not questioning you. 
I just got questions. Don't leave me here. And then, in the poem, as Solomon is speaking, God responds. Solomon describes the ways in which the Spirit comforts him, telling him that small faith is still faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed can still move mountains, after all. And that Jesus doesn't want him to have blind faith, but rather to have the faith of a blind man who couldn't see and yet believed. And then he speaks the part of the poem that, up until now, has defined his legacy. Up until this week, these following words were the ones that he was most known for, more than any others, the ones most often quoted. With rising energy, he says, speaking from God's perspective, consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. And you will see that they are just as empty as the tomb that I walked from. It seems that doubt has been a central part of Joseph Solomon's story for a very long time. It is the most often quoted uh, struggle that he talks about in all of his content. In a sermon that he preached at Biola just last year, he said, Every year for the last 15 years, I've said to myself, I don't know if I'll be able to hold on much longer. Every year I say to myself, I believe now, but I don't know if I will next year. Yet, I'm still here. Because maybe Jesus isn't threatened by my doubts. Every one of these statements about fighting through doubt has been met with cheers and applause from the church. I believe rightly so. Joseph Solomon has been venerated as a genuine, authentic, real talk kind of believer for admitting that he has doubt and yet persisting forward anyway. But then, last week, Solomon tweeted, seemingly to some, completely out of the blue, I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'll explain that further at some point in a podcast or something, but I'm really in no rush. I figured I'd at least set some context for any inquiring minds about how to handle me. A few days later, Solomon recorded an hour-long podcast offering some additional thoughts. Now, between him speaking very, very slowly in this podcast and taking very, very long pauses, it was more like 15 minutes of content. Um, but in those 15 minutes, in that short amount of time, he had some very heart-wrenching things to say. He started this podcast out by saying, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I wish you could put the toothpaste back in the tube. He cites his shadow of a doubt poem, and he changes course, saying that he isn't going back, rather he's evolving, he's going forward, forward to, he says, a healthier place, a place where he feels safer, where he can help other people who are also drifting away from the faith to know that they will be okay, and that they can find hope, they can find clarity, morality, community, peace, joy, outside the faith saying all those things that were marketed as exclusive to Christianity, you can find outside of its boundaries. Regarding his doubt, 
He says that he genuinely saw after the face of the God of the Bible, pleading in tears to take away his doubt. That he tried for so long to believe the God of the Bible. Until finally he's arrived at a place where he says, I looked all over for the evidence and I didn't see it. So I kept going forward as if it were true. If that's not faith, what is? He revealed that he felt immense pressure to always be a perfect Christian because he's always on the stage. He's always on the pedestal. But when the pandemic hit and there's no longer any spotlight, there's no more shows being booked, he was able to step back, be by himself, and give his doubt the room that it needed. During that time, he said he stopped calling his doubt, doubt, because that was a negative thing. And he said that he took issue with Jesus' words in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, my burden is light. And Solomon said, no, it's actually heavy. Very heavy. Eventually, he says, I finally became okay with just letting go. So, Solomon's doubts seemed to win the day. After staying under the surface for so long, they finally boiled over and took control. Now, part of the question for us, other than interest in another human being's story, is whether there are lessons here for us to learn for ourselves. Perhaps it makes you wonder, if someone like Joseph Solomon or any of these other super-Christians can fall away, what would prevent any of us from falling away? If the gospel isn't powerful enough for that guy or for that girl, is it powerful enough for me? So in this series, we're going to try to dissect some things. Things like doubt, faith, real, honest community. How we can build our faith in such a way that we are more likely to last and why that's worth it. And hopefully, we will also open the door to some real conversations for any of you who might be in the process of deconstructing yourselves. And you are scared to death to talk to anyone about it. Today, we're going to look at doubt. And what better story is there in the Bible than the story that gave birth to one of the worst nicknames in all of history, Doubting Thomas. So, if you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, that day being Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Yeah, no joke. Sometimes I read a statement in Scripture and I'm like, boy, what an understatement. The disciples were glad they saw Jesus. Okay. Yeah, he had just been crucified. Now they're terrified. They think they're next. And all of a sudden, the resurrected Lord shows up in the room. And it says, they were glad. 
Yes, thank you for that, John. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Man, you want to talk about the worst I missed out verse you have ever read. Like, I wasn't at the party when this or that happened. No, this is as bad as it gets, okay? Jesus showed up. Thomas was out for a walk or picking up groceries or he was the one who drawn the short straw to go get pizza. And Jesus showed up and he comes back and all the disciples are excited. He wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. What news? But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm sorry, Allison is giving me a look. Um, anytime I say the word blessed, she, uh, she shoots me a look because she's like, do you say stressed? It's blessed. <laughs> yes, my love, I'm sorry. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Now, though there is not the, the word doubt in this passage, that, that word doubt doesn't appear here, it seems like this is a pretty good example of it, right? And for that... Thomas is one of two disciples, just two, who are remembered negatively. The first, of course, is Judas, who is remembered exclusively for being a thief and a betrayer. And Thomas, his lasting legacy is his doubt. Now, sure, we have other examples of other disciples at times being painted in a negative light, but then we also have them being redeemed in some way. They make up for it somehow, or Jesus restores them. Thomas doesn't get much screen time in the Bible. He only gets a few verses. So the one thing that is put next to his name is the word doubt. When you look up the word doubt in the dictionary, you find Thomas. Not exactly how you'd like to be remembered. I'm sure. But I wonder if we are missing something when we look at this story. I wonder if there is more to this story, more that tells us about faith, about doubt, about how we relate to Jesus, about how Jesus relates to us. And I wonder if we're being a little bit too harsh on Thomas. If we're being far more harsh on Thomas than even Jesus himself was. 
Today what I'd like to show you is that doubt and faith are not either or. Uh, I'd like to draw your doubts out from where they're hiding in the shadows. Give them a safe place to speak and be spoken to. And I want you to understand from this story that Jesus is not against evidence. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Thomas was not alone in his doubt, and neither are you. Thomas was not alone in his doubt, and neither are you. Again, I think perhaps we have given Thomas a bit too harsh of a moniker. He's painted as being this terrible doubter, and we all look down our noses at him, and we're like, ah, doubting Thomas. But let's back up for just a moment and imagine that we ourselves are in the same situation. Okay, put yourself in the position of Thomas. Easter Sunday, that we know as Easter Sunday, they didn't know that at the time. They're all there except for Thomas, and Jesus appears to them. Thomas gets back, and they say, Jesus is back. He rose from the dead. What would you say? Any of us would say, yeah, right. What are you guys smoking? Can I have some? That's our, any of us, if we're being totally honest, that is how we would respond. We, we have to understand this, that the disciples had absolutely no category whatsoever for what they were experiencing. We read about it now, but at the time, they had no category for this. This had never, ever happened. Yes, they had watched Jesus raise other people from the dead. Okay, they, they had seen that. They saw Jesus, for example, standing at Lazarus' tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and this dead guy walks out. Okay, they'd seen amazing things. They, they'd seen him perform miracles. They, they'd seen him heal sickness. But now he was dead. And no one... No one ever had raised themselves from the dead. Okay, that had never happened before and never since. It's happened one time, that time. Do you honestly think that any of us, any of us in that situation would not be doubting? I think if you believe that you wouldn't doubt, you are lying to yourself. Absolutely we'd be doubting. Absolutely we'd be questioning. Absolutely we'd be going, yeah, right. That did not happen. Because again, this marks the one time in human history that someone raises themselves from the dead. Nobody was laying hands on him. Nobody was praying over his body, asking God to raise him from the dead. God did it himself. So every single one of us would have had the same doubts as Thomas. He raised himself from the dead? Pfft, no way. That's where all of us would be. Now, there is evidence for this as well in another text. So, I forgot to put this uh, on the PowerPoint, and uh, my dear wife, when she was making it for me, she was like, are those the only scriptures you've got? And I was like, yeah, that, that, that's it. It wasn't. Uh, Luke chapter 24, this is another parallel passage about the crucifixion. On the, uh, on the resurrection day, 
Okay? Jesus raises from the dead. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They, the, the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now look at this next verse. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. So, this is parallel, right? The same thing. Jesus has appeared to some people. All these ladies go to the tomb to serve the Lord by, by putting these spices on his body, and instead, they receive the good news. Jesus is risen. Jesus appears in the garden. They go back and they tell the disciples, we saw the Lord. The Lord is risen. And every single one of these dudes is like, no, he didn't. I don't know what you guys are trying to pull here, but Jesus did not rise from the dead, okay? Something's going on. Something weird is happening. Peter runs back to the tomb and he checks it out and he's like, well, he's not here. That much is true. It's a marvel. I don't know what's going on. So we, we paint Thomas specifically in this terrible light. Oh, Thomas doubted. Come on, Thomas. You got the testimony from your peers that Jesus has appeared and you doubted. Every single one of them did. Without fail. Every one of them did. So Thomas is far from alone. Far from alone in his doubt. Far from alone in not believing what others have seen and he has not. So perhaps, perhaps this story isn't about specifically Thomas being so cold in doubt. Even though it kind of reads that way, right? Unless I see this evidence, I won't believe. But maybe it's more like this. Maybe it's more like the Lord has risen and appeared in bodily form to the other disciples and to the women at the tomb. And Thomas, I'm sure, feels left out by this. Thomas, I'm sure, is going, wait, wait a second. He, he appeared to you? And, and you? And you? He appeared to all of you? Why didn't he appear to me? Why didn't, why didn't he give me that experience? He, he gave you this incredible experience of seeing him. Why won't he give me that? I, I've been faithful to him. I've been walking with him. I'm one of you guys. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who hasn't experienced this. So listen, if he's going to give that to you guys, I'm not believing until he gives it to me too. 
I just want to have what you guys have. Until he appears to me, I, I can't believe that that actually took place. It's very important, very important that we don't paint every decon deconverted person as a reprobate who never loved Jesus in the first place and only wanted to walk away because they missed sinning. It's excruciating and disorienting and, and confusing and, and lonely for people who are struggling with their faith, for people who are struggling to find evidence, for people who are looking at the others around them and going, you've seen it, I haven't. Why can't I see it too? Why can't I experience it? Why is Jesus giving you all this and he's not giving any to me? One of the reasons why Joseph Solomon deconstructed from his faith is that he said he felt so much pressure to be a perfect Christian leader. That there was no space whatsoever for him to wrestle with the doubts that he was experiencing. My friends, we absolutely must must have a community in which it is okay to not be okay. A community in which you can truly be honest about the things that you're experiencing and the things that you're struggling with without any expectation that you're a perfect little Christian who believes in Jesus for every little thing and no doubts whatsoever. Let me be totally honest. When my dad died, and some of you guys know that story, when my dad died, I honestly and seriously questioned if I was ever going to see him again. If, if everything that I have ever taught and believed was even real. And I'm so thankful that I had the space to say to my wife, that I had the space to say to some close friends, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my dad again. I just don't know. He's gone, and maybe that's forever. Maybe this stuff isn't true. And what I got in return was love. Hugs, shoulders to cry on. I'm so glad that in that moment I didn't receive rebukes and admonishments to just believe. I had to work through this stuff. I had to work through these emotions and with these people surrounding me, that's what happened. These stories of deconstruction, in my opinion, in most cases feature people who have been put on such a high pedestal that they have no space whatsoever to be anything but perfect. Nearly every one of them has expressed the same fear. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? What, what are people going to say? And eventually, those fears that have forced them to just shove down the doubts and the questions give way to deeper doubt, and one thing after another begins to crumble, and they can't stop the dominoes from falling. But this is not only true for famous Christians, the, the people that everybody knows and, and puts on a pedestal. This is true for so many people who come into church on Sunday mornings, or in our case, Sunday evenings. And they're experiencing doubts and struggles, but they don't want to upset the apple cart. They, they don't want to make a scene. They don't want to be the one to raise their hand and go, I don't know if I believe that. What, what about this? What, what, about, what about this question? Because Church culture demands that every single one of us come into church and give the same answer when we are asked, how are you doing? Fine. Good. Blessed. Hashtag blessed. More blessed than I deserve. 
good in the grace of God. I'm good. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I come to church and I'm not doing friggin' fine. I'm struggling. I'm battling. I'm wrestling with believing what God says about me. I'm, I'm wrestling to believe in the truth. I'm fighting inner demons and doubts and sins and questions. And praise God, praise God that there are people that I trust, that I can approach and say, talk me off the ledge. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm spiraling out of control. Do you have anyone like that? Because if you don't, and you are running the hamster wheel of coming to church on Sundays and pretending that everything is unicorns and rainbows, my friend, you may be on a path that leads to deconstruction. This is not a perfect church. Far from it. It is filled with imperfect people and all of their imperfections. But as long as I am the pastor here, I want to lead us to a place where we have a community where people aren't forced to be okay. Where we can talk to each other and be honest and say, I have a question. Actually, I have a thousand. Can we set up a time to talk? Point number two. Doubt, faith, and courage can coexist. Doubt, faith, and courage can coexist. There's a mistake we often make when we see someone doing something they shouldn't. And that is, we throw out the whole person. Right? This is cancel culture, after all. A person can't make a mistake, ever. And if they do, then by God, they better hope that it wasn't recorded. There was nobody with a camera. It wasn't written down somewhere. Because if it was, see ya. We've lost sight of the truth that we are all complex, sinful, imperfect people. And sometimes there's bad that's mixed in with the good. That doesn't mean that we don't address the bad or, or just let it slide. We just shouldn't let that be our only defining factor. When we think about doubt, we probably don't think about faith and courage as well. We probably don't immediately realize that those things can all be existing in almost equal measure within us at the same time. That it is possible to have doubt and yet also have faith and be courageous. One of my favorite examples of this is in Mark chapter 5 where this guy brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and he asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus responds that the man needs to believe and the man cries out, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. I, I do have faith. I, I have questions. I have doubts. I have fears. But you know what? I'm siding with you anyway. I'm putting my trust in you anyway. That is one of the most beautiful and honest statements in all of Scripture. And when he says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief, Jesus doesn't look at him and go, your unbelief? Uh-uh. Approach me differently when all you have is belief. 
Jesus has grace in that moment. And he says, I accept that. I can work with that. I believe, help my unbelief. I can work with that. Thomas is often only described with this expression of doubt. That's all he's ever identified with. But we forget that Thomas had one other pretty significant line in the Gospels. And it shows tremendous courage. There's only two times that we find Thomas speaking. The whole doubting thing, and there's one other. Thomas' first recorded words in the Gospels are some of the bravest. It's a scene in which he expresses loyalty in the face of risk. It's in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, this is just before Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay, So Jesus and the crew are not there. Lazarus is at home. He's about to die. John chapter 11, verse 16. Now let me back up um, to, uh, to verse 7 to, to set context. Okay, The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? So Jesus is like, all right, we're going to Bethany. We're going to go to 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 Lazarus. And uh, his disciples are all like, yeah, Jesus, that's not such a good idea. Uh, Last time you were there, uh, there was a riot, and they tried to kill you. You really want to go back there? Is that such a good idea? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. (laughs) Morons. Um, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Now, verse 16, okay? So the disciples are all warning him, uh, if, if we go back there, they're going to want to stone you. And we're probably going to die too. Let's not do that, okay? Let's stay here. Uh, he's just taking a nap. He's going to be all right. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, listen, if we never saw the verse in chapter 20 and that was all Thomas got, he wouldn't be known as Doubting Thomas. He would be known as Boss Thomas, okay? Because Thomas speaks this line of tremendous bravery and courage where the other disciples are like, no, we don't want to go because we're going to die. And Thomas goes, look, y'all, if he's dying, I'm dying with him. Let's go. I mean, that's awesome, right? So we've got these two scenes that seem at odds, right? Where in one, he's expressing doubt. But in this one, he makes this profound, brave, courageous, epic statement of, if Jesus gonna die, I'm gonna die too. Let's roll. Then when we take that, okay, understanding that that's the kind of guy he was, and we now bring that into John chapter 20, to set some additional context. Knowing that this is the type of guy he is, now let's look at that type of guy in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, when he speaks, he also makes a confession of faith 
that is incredibly profound. John chapter 20, in verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas calls Jesus both Lord and God. Did you know that he is the first disciple to make that explicit declaration? He's the first one. Now, Peter had previously called Jesus the Son of God, which is quite similar. But Thomas is the first one to come out and say, You are my God. Tradition tells us that Thomas spent the rest of his life as a missionary. That he brings the gospel east into India, where he's eventually martyred. And yet, all we remember this dude for is his doubt. But what we find is these profound, deep, meaningful, true statements about the divinity of Jesus and how much Jesus means to him. There's another detail that I want us to see that I think is really easy to miss in this story. And it's often in those tiny little details that we skip over that we see incredible things. Um, If you look at verse 25 and 26. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The first three words of verse 26 say, Eight days later. Now, that may not seem like a significant three words. I would argue that every single word in here is important. It's interesting to me that Jesus waits eight days in between the first time that he appears to his disciples and the second time. What on earth was Jesus doing for eight days? Where did he go? Okay, what was he up to? What was he doing? I am glad, so glad, that uh, John follows this story in verse 30 by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Thank you. Okay, that's a blanket statement that says Jesus did a lot of stuff that's not written here. We just wrote the most important things that you might believe. Where is Jesus for eight days? Okay, the disciples are waiting. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus was up to. But you can imagine, okay, the disciples are waiting in the room with incredibly high anticipation. They're gathered together every single day waiting for Jesus to walk through the door again. They were there on Easter Sunday, all afraid when Jesus just walks through the wall and he's there in their midst, okay? Then he leaves, and I'm sure they were like, where are you going? And Jesus was like, I'm going to go do... It doesn't say. But now they're waiting. They're waiting for him to return, waiting for him to walk through the door again. And you better believe that Thomas is making sure he is present this time, okay? He's like, I'm not going anywhere, all right? I'm not going to miss it this time. Somebody else get the pizza. I'm staying right here. No way am I going to move until Jesus gets back. That, I think, is a detail that we skip. 
Because on Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to all of them except for Thomas, and then he doesn't come back for eight days. So, counting the days that Jesus was dead and in the tomb, it's been nearly two weeks since Thomas has seen Jesus alive. And yet, he's there in that room. He is right there, waiting. He hasn't left. He hasn't gone anywhere. All the other disciples and, and, and the women are talking about, oh man, we saw, and it was great, and he's not going anywhere. He is waiting for God to come through. Do any of you identify with that? Can you, can you feel that? I'm just waiting for God to come through. I'm not leaving and it's been such a long wait, and I don't see him, and others have seen him, others have experienced him, and I haven't, but I'm staying right here until I experience him too. I'm not going anywhere. Eight days is a long time, but I'm not going anywhere. And you can imagine the, the feeling in the room, like the other disciples are excited They'd seen Jesus. They've got high anticipation. Can you imagine how lonely this was for Thomas? He's the only one in the room feeling what he's feeling. Everybody else has had a picture of the party except for Thomas. He is by himself. They're waiting for Jesus with bated breath and excitement. He's waiting. Nervous anticipation. And in this, Thomas is showing great faith, even as he feels great doubt. Thomas doesn't leave and go, all y'all are crazy. I'm going back to my day job. Thomas says, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to let this thing play out. I, I want to believe it's true. <sighs> Boy, can you imagine if it's true? Can you imagine if what they're saying is actually, I don't want to miss that. I'm, I'm going to stay right here. I was willing to die for Jesus. I'm willing to wait for Jesus. I'm going to stay right here. So even as he experienced this incredible feeling of doubt, he also shows great faith. Point number three. Jesus meets our doubt with abundant grace. Jesus meets our doubt with abundant grace. I love, I love the way that Jesus responds to Thomas in this story. Jesus shows up in the room, okay? He finally comes. It's been eight days. Everybody's waiting. Jesus walks in and says, peace be with you, which is a first century way of saying, what's up, dudes? And the other disciples, I'm sure, are jumping up and down, excited. He's back, he's back, I told you he's back, yes! Thomas, I'm sure, okay? Uh, if you imagine the scene, okay, Thomas is sitting there with his jaw on the floor. Because everybody else has seen it. He has it. Thomas, jaw on the floor. And it's Jesus who goes over to Thomas, who, without a word spoken from Thomas, goes over to him and says, 
Thomas, place your hands on my wounds. It's really me. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas is struggling with. Thomas didn't speak up and say, okay, can I touch the wounds? No, Thomas is just sitting there and Jesus approaches him and says, touch my hands, Thomas. Place your hands right here. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas has said to the other believers. Even though he wasn't there when Thomas verbalized his doubt, Jesus knows exactly what his doubt was. And graciously, he gives Thomas exactly what he asked for. He, he doesn't say, Thomas, how dare you question me? How dare you have doubts, Thomas, after all that I've done for you? He says, Thomas, this is what you were looking for, right? That is grace. That is such deep personal love for someone in the midst of a struggle. And we read it like such a, a scathing rebuke, right? We, we read it like Jesus is pointing his finger at him like, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed are those who believe when they haven't seen but that's not really the attitude of the heart of Christ in this moment. This is less of a rebuke toward Thomas, though it's a soft rebuke, it's soft. But it's more like a blessing to future believers. He says, Thomas, you, you believe because I showed up here and let you physically see me and, and place your hand in my wounds, but not everybody else is going to have that benefit. What, when they believe me, even though they don't have what I gave you, they're going to be really blessed for that. The moral of this story, as much as deconversion stories that I've watched on YouTube would argue otherwise, the moral of this story is not that we should believe without evidence. That's, that's not what it is. The moral of this story is not you need to have blind faith. Jesus is not saying that only people who believe without any proof are blessed. If that was what he was saying, that does not bode well for any of us. If Jesus is saying, listen, real Christians are people who don't ask for any kind of evidence and they just close their eyes and believe. Whew. We're all in trouble. And we would have a very shallow faith. What Jesus is saying to Thomas, and which is also to our benefit, is that Thomas has a direct physical encounter with Jesus that, that leads him to believe. And most people are not going to have that type of evidence. Most people are not going to have that type of proof. They are going to place their faith based on different types of evidence than what Thomas would. Not a lack of evidence, but evidence of a different type. A type that will require a little more of them. A type that will require them to examine more and study more. And so, they are going to receive an extra blessing for that faith, for studying that evidence. So look at it this way. I mentioned my dad. What would it take for you to believe that my dad, Rick Velilla, was a kind, loving, and wonderful man? I mean, I could say that. 
And you might believe it because I'm your pastor and you think I would never lie to you. You'd think it was just a natural conclusion. And what if you wanted to really study that? Would everyone blame you for wanting to prove that statement? If you really wanted to know whether my dad was a great guy, you would need some evidence. So how would you get that evidence? Well, maybe you would interview a bunch of people that knew him. Maybe you would read his journal. Maybe, maybe you'd listen to his sermons or, or watch videos of him. Maybe, maybe you'd visit ministries that he was a part of and examine the impact that he had in those places. It would be crazy of you to just take a statement at face value with no evidence whatsoever that he was a great man, right? You'd naturally ask the question, what made him so great? Why do you say he was such a good dude? And you'd study to see why that statement was or was not true. But in all of your study, there would be one thing that you would not be able to do. And that is to have a direct physical encounter with Rick Velilla. To interview him yourself. Why? Well, he's dead. And he ain't getting any deader, right? He ain't coming back. You could not interview him yourself. But would that prevent you from being able to build a compelling case based on real evidence that he was a great dude? Of course not. Sure, it would be great if you got to meet him yourself. But even though you never saw him, you could have plenty of proof to rest your faith upon that my dad was the man that I describe him to be. Because you know who did have direct encounters with him? Me. And so I'm going to be the one to provide you the evidence that you need to believe in what I say about him. That is what Jesus is telling Thomas. You, Thomas, have the benefit of me physically standing in the room with you. Other people are not going to get that benefit. But they will have plenty of evidence to rely upon. And blessed are they for relying on that evidence that you are going to go give them. Receive the Holy Spirit and go off to minister, which he did. Now you might ask the question, okay, well, why doesn't God just prove to everyone that he exists? Right? Why doesn't he appear physically to every person the way that he did for Thomas? And he probably could. You're right, he could. But I would say, perhaps God cares less about proving his existence as much as he cares about drawing people into relationship with himself. Now, let, let me unpack that for a moment. If God's chief concern was proving his existence, he could, for example, write in the stars every day, I am God. Here I am. This is not a trick. This is not a joke. This is not Elon Musk playing a trick on you. Here I am. And then he would be done, right? Point proven. Where would that leave us? Well, it would still leave us dead in our sins. It would still leave us condemned justly, without a savior. You see, mankind was created not to believe in the existence of God, but to have a relationship with God. Our chief problem is not believing whether or not he exists. Our chief problem is broken fellowship with him because of sin, 
So what does God do about our chief problem? He becomes a human. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross in our place, and he rises from the dead. And in doing so, he solves both problems. He proves that he exists, and he does what is necessary to reconcile us to himself. Now you might say, why doesn't he do both? Be Jesus the Savior and appear to everyone else. And write his name in the sky every day. Listen, I get it. Sometimes I wish that that would happen too. But it seems that instead, instead of doing that, God decided that his desire for humankind was not just to save them through Jesus, but also to endow us with the incredible mission of being a part of his story of redemption. Because God wasn't interested in just having a bunch of individual disconnected believers. God was interested in having a deeply connected and unified body of people. And the best way to do that was to use people to reach people. God wanted you and I not only to have salvation, he also wanted us to have eternally significant mission, infusing every moment, every relationship, every connection with eternal purpose. That's pretty amazing. I also need to point out something that many times we forget when we're having this conversation. People say, well, if Jesus just showed up and performed a miracle, I would believe. Uh, I'd say, believe what exactly? And what would that belief lead to or accomplish? Again, the point is not believing that he exists. James tells us that even the demons believe that God exists. James is like, oh, you believe God is real? Cool, Satan believes that. What difference does that make? It's not about believing he's real. It's about giving him control of your life. That story about Lazarus in John chapter 11, the disciples aren't the only ones that are there. There's also Pharisees there. There's bystanders. And they watch as Jesus raises this dude from the dead. Okay? You would think that if a miracle was going to convince you, that would be it. A guy has been dead for so long that the King James says he stinketh. All right? He's a corpse. And now he's coming out. We would think, all right, I give up. You're God. What do I got to do? But what does it say? In that, the Pharisees witnessed this happen. And their immediate response is to huddle up and go, we got to figure out how to take this guy out. We got to figure out how to take this guy out. Their response was, how do we put him to death? He is stealing our power. There's a great difference, my friends, between belief and submission. But I'm getting away from the point. The point is, we can bring our doubts to Jesus. We can bring our doubts to wise community, and we can use these doubts as a place to grow to even deeper places of faith. So I want to close with a final word of application. Joseph Solomon told us to doubt your doubts. And while 
that is poetic, clearly it's not enough. For now, Joseph Solomon himself is not doubting his doubts. In a sense, doubting your doubts means delegitimizing them. To doubt your doubts is to deny them or to tell them that they aren't real. And yes, it also means to call into question what they're trying to convince you of, which I think is good, but it's not enough. So I think we ought to aim for something higher. Instead of saying, doubt your doubts, I would say, dissect your doubts. Do you remember being in eighth grade biology and dissecting a frog, right? We've all had that disgusting experience, right? You took that frog and you laid it on the table and you took a scalpel and carefully sliced that sucker open and pulled out each one of its little organs and put them individually and and identified them and then you've got your lab partner who for some reason it wasn't their turn that day and they're taking notes and you take each one of those body parts and you you turn it all around and inside out and in doing so you can see how it works and and why it does what it does and and what processes are a part of it And, and you and your partner look back and forth from the frog to the textbook and you see how the textbook explains, and, and you see the pictures that are in the textbook now jumping off the page as, as real things in your hand as you turn them over, and you label each part and each process, and then you never look at a frog the same way again, because you now know what's under the surface of the skin. Now, was it uncomfortable for us to do that? Yes. At least it was for me. It was Not a fun experience. The formaldehyde is still in my nose somehow, right? You can still smell the smell of dissecting a frog. The frog was slimy and it was gross and pulling it apart was weird and it was unnerving. But it accomplished the goal that it was supposed to accomplish. You learned about that frog in a way that you never could otherwise. There are many approaches that people take to doubt. Many approaches that well-meaning Christians try to address these nagging questions. Here is my approach, and I think it to be wise. Dissect your doubt. Not alone. Get some wise lab partners together, and as a team... Get a scalpel and start slicing open the things that you're struggling with. Label each part and each process. Why you feel how you feel about certain things. Recognizing that every single person is unique, but in basic ways, every person is alike in the ways that their minds and their bodies function. Don't be afraid to to cut open every single question turning it around every which way so that you can examine it fully. Consult the textbook at every turn to find the answers that you're looking for to jump off the page. And will it be uncomfortable? Yes, of course. 
the stench of the spiritual formaldehyde will make you and your lab partners cringe. It will be humbling, vulnerable. At times, it will be slimy. But together, you will see the ideas that you've learned about in the Bible come to life in your own heart. Dissect your doubts, my friends. Dissect your doubts. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the story of brave Thomas. Help us, Lord, to face our doubts with courage and with faith, to dissect them with our lab partners in our church community. God, I pray for any person right now who is here or who is watching online or listening to this podcast at a later time. I pray for any person who is struggling, Lord, with doubts and questions and fears. Lord, that you would invite them into into honest community in which they can explore and dissect in a healthy way. God, I pray that this church would be a place where we can do exactly that. We're in honest conversation and in relationship with each other. We can come to grips with these things rather than ignoring them or doubting them. God, I pray that as a result, our faith would grow even deeper than it ever has before. That as it is tested, it is also proven. Lord, I pray also for any person who has never come to a place where they have surrendered their life to you. More than just believing that you exist, giving you control, giving you their everything. God, I pray that you would call them to yourself today. God, I pray that over the next few moments, your Holy Spirit would lead us, each individually, would draw us communicate clearly to us what you desire. Give us the courage to do what we need to do, whatever that is. Give us the courage to be honest about it, to talk to someone, to have a conversation. God, we lift you high and we worship you even when we don't feel like it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we'll close and worship.